Welcome to Rumsey Connections. My name is Meredith Gaskins, and I'm joined today by Alex Lutz, the VP of Marketing and Public Relations at Rumsey, along with Dan Ryan, the Director of Advertising here at the Advance. And we have Dr. Brian Gilchrist, a pediatric surgeon from Rumsey. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Through Rumsey Connections, you will meet the fantastic doctors, nurses, and medical professionals that make our hospital thrive. We'll also provide useful information about your own health, explore the latest medical news, and hopefully get you answers to some of your own health-related questions. When a family is faced with emergency or elective surgery for their child, they may be confronted with mixed emotions, fear, and apprehension. But at Richmond University Medical Center, pediatric surgery is performed on all age groups, from newborns to adolescents. Rumsey's Department of Surgery performs over 10,000 surgical procedures a year in both an ambulatory and inpatient basis. The hospital serves Staten Island as a level one trauma center, responding to over 1,000 traumas a year with excellent outcomes. The hospital also boasts 11 operating suites with the latest technology and has a new state-of-the-art surgical department opening later this year. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Gilchrist. Dr. Gilchrist is a graduate of Tufts Medical School in Massachusetts and did his surgery training at Harvard University, also in Massachusetts, and Brown University in Rhode Island. He completed his internship and junior residency at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Massachusetts. Dr. Gilchrist was formerly chair of surgery at Bronx Lebanon Hospital and chief of pediatric surgery at NYU Winthrop Hospital in Long Island. He performs more than 700 procedures a year, and Dr. Gilchrist is a board-certified surgeon in both surgery and pediatric surgery. So, Dr. Gilchrist, welcome once again. Thank you very much. Uh, so, can you please enlighten us a little bit what interested you in the pediatric field of surgery? I think when you look at children, you realize that they're victims. Uh, adults who have diseases get them from smoking, from eating too much, too much stress, driving too fast. Kids are just complete victims of disease, so they get visited by this horrible situation, whatever it may be, and we're here to uh, care for them. So for me, it's both a spiritual and a technical um, sort of duality, because for me, the technical aspects of pediatric surgery are a finesse. You have to have tremendous respect for tissue integrity. The, the kids are made out of water, so your technical aspects are much different than doing adult surgery. And also... It's, uh, it's a spiritual exercise because the most precious thing in a person's life is their child. And they hand you their child and they say, care for my child, save my child, make my child whole. So for me, it's both a uh, technical uh, wonder and a, and a spiritual exercise. At Rumsey, because of the ambiance of the hospital, it has a old, almost Judaic Christian uh, mode of philosophy. That there's a kindness, there's a milk of kindness at that hospital that you don't see many places. The nurses, for instance, in the anesthesia people are so kind and so uh, aware of the mothers, especially that nobody in the world suffers like a mother. There, there's no pain like a mother's pain. It's, it's biology. And our people, especially in anesthesia nursing, take especially good care of the mothers who uh, are uh, anxious about their child's well-being. Now, the fathers, of course, are the same, but there's a special connection with the mothers. Uh, as my mother used to say, the only one at the foot of the cross was his mother. So it's, yes. it's a very uh, understandable thing when you talk about biology that uh, nobody cares about their kids like their mother. We have to look after the mothers as we do for their children. So I think that's the special aspect in what drew me to pediatric surgery per se. And I imagine it, it, 
it's to your point, it's, it's different in that, you know, Meredith has young children, Dan has, has young children. But when you deal with young children, they can't always tell you what's wrong. So it's not like an adult who can tell you I'm, I'm so, so when, when you get to, when you're called in for a surgery, let's say an emergency, how do you approach that particular situation? I think that the, the premise is this, there's only 500, 475 actually, pediatric surgeons in America, in the United States, that's it. <laughs> so our training is very focused. You know, if you, you talk about the Green Berets, you talk about specialists, you talk about people like the, the Rangers, or you talk about professional athletes, there are a certain select crowd who can do that which they've been called upon to do. Mm-hmm. Pediatric surgeons get a focused seven-year to 11-year training. So the premise is that they are finely honed in their diagnostics. So as you say, the kids can't talk or the kids can't give you, you know, what's wrong. So you have to be able to discern what's wrong. That comes from training. And, you know, we all trained in large children's hospitals. I mean, I trained at Brown. You know, we had 16,000 deliveries a year. So the training is uh, acute and deep, and I think that's what bespeaks good care for the kids, the training that the people have had. There's so few of us. So 700 sounds like a huge number of procedures to, to handle in a year. Is that is that that's an average year for you? Well, I think, I think most, well, for me, I've, I've usually done over 800, 850 cases a year because I, I'm sort of a, you know, some people are rainmakers. You set up a bar. Everybody comes to a bar. I've always been a rainmaker. Wherever I go, I was at a pediatrician send all the cases in. So when I was in the Bronx, I mean, I operated on almost every kid in the Bronx for five years. And when I was in Boston, I, we went from a department of about 300 cases to 1,300 because it just happens. I hope you get a following. And if the energy is, is, is um, it just continues inside of you. It's a dynamic. The more you do, the more you want to do because it's so, so gratifying. What's the age range for the pediatrics? For, for well, it's it's a great that's a great question. We operate on pediatric diseases even if you're in your 30s. I'll give you a perfect example: sickle cell disease, and cystic fibrosis, for instance. The number one genetic disease in, in blacks is sickle cell. The number one genetic disease in whites is cystic fibrosis. So there's a lot of complications that are rife with those diseases. If you're 30 and you've got a problem with sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, one of your systems, your lungs, your belly, somewhere. We still get called upon to take care of those people because we have the expertise to do it. But generally, we go from age zero, newborns, to 21, some places 18. When you do trauma, we don't do anything above 14. And if you have a pediatric disease, we'll take care of you in your 30s or 40s. Mm. And do you find that most of the procedures that you do, are, are they scheduled procedures or are they emergency situations that arise? So 30, 35% of what all of us do in pediatric surgery is unscheduled, so emergent. The the greatest sorrow in the world is the loss of a child to a parent. There's no greater, there, it is a grief that never goes away. So our whole our whole entity, our whole group of pediatric surgeons across the country are always fighting to be proactive to make sure your kid doesn't get hit, doesn't get drowned, doesn't get shot, doesn't get stabbed, because we know the pain that a parent has when a patient, when a kid is dead. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that will ever make you better. It's a grief that's unquenchable. You save lives by being smart proactively. I can fix you, but I can't always fix you. And if you come in hurt, we can fix you. But if you have a head injury or you're dead, there's nothing much you can do about it. There's nothing worse than a head injured kid. Near drownings, that's another one. You know, if you're going to have a swimming pool at your house or you're going to have your kids around the pool, for God's sakes, you've got to be as diligent as you can be. You've got to be torn because a near drowning where a kid then ends up with a G-tube and traked for the rest of their lives is a 
horror that you don't want to experience. Mm -hmm. Proactive advocacy for the kids is very important. And you can see the the, the passion that, that you, as you say that. How do you and your your pediatric surgeons, I mean, that, we, we had Dr. Harris on our chair of surgery a couple episodes ago, and he talked about the pressures of being a surgeon and having someone's life in your hands. You have a life in your hands, and you have two parents that are looking to you with, how do you handle that level of pressure? Or do you just kind of, I got to do what I got to do? Oh, no, not, not at all. Um, but I don't understand this. I have the Celtic happy gene. <laughs> I mean, no matter what you throw at me, uh -huh. I'm Irish. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna win, and and if you think you're gonna knock me down, you're not. I might not. You might. But I'm gonna get back up. And the bottom line is, I feel the sorrow of these people deeply, but through prayer and through the grace of God, you get through it. Mm -hmm. Now I run every morning. I run. I run all my life. But it's not the running. It's not the endorphins. It's my believe in God, mm -hmm. and it's the same God that is among the Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians. It's the God of Abraham. And I believe deeply in the concept that uh, we're all here for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And if I have a bad day, if I lose a kid, if I see something horrible, uh, it takes me down. But I don't drink, and I uh, I pray. So that's what gets me through it. I don't really feel the pressures when I'm doing it. It's a um, it's a thing of joy. It's a mm -hmm. thing of beauty. Mm -hmm. I mean, I might shout out orders. I can be I can be I can be tough. I'm a, I can of a martinet sometimes but the bottom line is i get the job done because i'm a guardian angel who's supposed to get the job done and um that may sound a bit uh crazy to some but it's uh you know when you're when your fighter pilot gets gets geared up and gets into his, his jet to to fly off into combat you want him thinking he's the best jet pilot in the world and when i walk into that operator room I think to myself if it was my kid i'd want me doing it and that sounds arrogant to some and and, and i've been accused of course all my my life of being cocky, but I, I don't mean to be. But I I, uh, I think you have to take that sort of attitude when you're going in there once more into the breach every time. Absolutely. So are there any procedures that you'd say are the most frequently performed surgeries with pediatric patients? The number one operation done on kids emergently is appendectomy. Okay. So it's a funny thing about appendectomies. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. In 1991, uh -huh. I was still a fellow. I, uh, I gave the first paper ever nationally on doing appendectomies with a laparoscope. So I'm in Orlando, Florida, on 800 people, and when I finished the talk, the old guys, the generation ahead of me, came down, and I thought they were going to beat me up. They were so angry that we were using a laparoscope to in, because it was a change, a huge change. And that was the first paper I did. We had 14 cases, and we did them all at the laparoscope, and they did brilliantly. No more incisions. So I now do very minimal. I, I use tiny, tiny little, uh, anyway, we do it very minimally now at Rumsey. But I think it's an interesting sort of point now as robotics are coming on board. I'll give you a perfect example. I went to the American Pediatrical Meeting uh, last month in Florida. Again, same place. I was looking around to see if those guys were still around to be helped. And, and robotics are coming now to the forefront of pediatrics. Remember now, if you do robotic surgery, you need large, more eight millimeter ports to put into adults. You can't use them for kids, but a new company has come out now with tiny miniaturized equipment. You can do it three millimeters. So in not having to look inside a, a, a viewing box, it's changing dramatically. The technology is getting better every week. So pretty soon, it's going to be all robotic. I walked away from that meeting thinking five years from now, what I do and what our generation does is going to be gone, completely gone. 
and we're going to be doing all robotic surgery. But nobody's angry about it because the switch from open to laparoscopic was a big change. But now with robotics, people are saying, you know, okay, technology's technology. Remember, you had LPs, then you had cassettes, you had 8-tracks, mm -hmm. you had CDs, now streaming. So technology changes every week for the better. And I think, remember, the three greatest breakthroughs in medicine, history of medicine have been what? Use of soap and water, the discovery of penicillin, and now the genome. So think about the genome for a minute. Before, if you had a cancer with a kid, I was St. Jude's for two years. If you had AML, uh, leukemia, you were dead. It was a death sentence. Now, everybody lives for leukemia. And you say to yourself, why is that? Well, the genome, when you look at the genomic construct of every tumor, you can now sort of tailor what you need to hit. You don't have to poison the patient anymore, knock out their bone marrow. You can actually hit the tumor. These things that are happening technologically from robots to immunotherapy to chemotherapy, all because the genome are taking us to places we've never been before. So it's, it's, you know, I say to the young residents, I mean, you guys are at the forefront. This is, you should be so excited. You should be thanking God that you're at this point in your life right now because sky's the limit. I mean, the sky is the limit. So I imagine when you're working on, on kids, all the instruments are different sizes as you, as you talk to this. That takes some adjusting, I guess, so getting used to that. Yeah tiny equipment. I got small hands. You have to be very conscious of how much water kids are made out of. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that people forget. You and I, you know, if you're over, if you're over 20, you know, you're made about 80, maybe 75% out of water. But when you're a baby, you're about 90% made out of water. So the tissue, when you're doing a hernia, for instance, on a kid, you can actually see through the, uh, the membranes. You can actually see through it. So the kids are, it's, it's a gentle approach and you have to be, you have to be soft in your approach to surgery. Wow. It's a whole different mindset. Are there any specific procedures now that you specialize in? Well, I mean, you know, I, I wrote a book on NEC. Um, so it was fairly well received. Uh, necrotizing enterocolitis is a disease of newborns. And it, it, there's a, a tremendous immunologic deficiency in some of these kids, and they get tremendous uh, GI tract uh, inflammation and sometimes perforations. So I, I, I became somewhat of a quasi maven or expert on, on necrotized enterocolitis. So I see a lot of those, but it, it, it rumsy because they, the NICU is so good at it, we don't see this disease. It's usually seen in sporadic groups of NICUs where it spreads. We don't see a lot of that. Okay. But what I do, which is very unglamorous, is I do uh, minimally invasive pilonidal disease. Now, pilonidal disease is something that's very frequent in males uh, who are hirsute and maybe a little oily. And when the when the when your natal cleft packed on your backside, you get a abscess at the very top on your backside, and that's called pilonidal cyst or pilonidal disease. In the in the past, the guys used to completely remove it and leave a hole the size of your fist to heal from inside out. That was always the approach. It's always been used. Pilonidal disease is an embryologic defect. Instead of the skin coming together in a concavity, sometimes the skin goes underneath the skin. So it's like a tulip coming through the pavement. So this tulip is a hair, hair follicle, sebaceous cyst, and then it becomes secondarily infected. Then it's very painful. It was first described 1944. It was called Jeep's disease. Mm -hmm. All the troops who were in Europe for the war would be riding on the Jeeps and on the backside, they'd get all this pressure and it would invoke this inherent problem that they had. They didn't know, but all of a sudden pressure evoked it. So it's become a very well-known disease. It's very painful and very labor-intensive to take care of postoperatively. So in 09, 
I had read a lot on hydrogen peroxide as a uh, entity for curing abscesses. So I decided I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to put these people through this misery. I was actually going to their houses sometimes to help them change their dressings. That's, that's how bad it was. So I do a minimally invasive operation where I just take a angiocath, a little needle, asleep, and I blow in 120 cc's of 3% hydrogen peroxide. And it's a trifecta. First of all, all the junk inside gets pushed out by the pressure. Secondly, the 3% hydrogen peroxide causes sclerosis of the membrane, so the membrane is gone. And then thirdly, most importantly, you form the Cantilese reaction. H2O2 plus the polymorphonucleosides from white cells forms a, a entity that is exothermic. It gets, it gets hot. So this catalase reaction kills all the anaerobes because it frees up an oxygen-free radical. If you have an oxygen-free radical, the oxygen-free radical knocks out anything that's anaerobic. And usually these infections are due to anaerobes. So it's been, I've done over probably 350 now. I presented it both in Paris in 2013 and then at NYU in 2016. And unfortunately, I, I, I termed it pilonatal disease cured, which they thought was very arrogant. But, but here's the bottom line. You don't have to do a huge operation and put these people in horrible uh, morbidity for a year. And I've had remarkable success with it. And uh, it works. So people, you put a little packing in, two days later, you're done. I've had about five recurrences out of about 300 cases, which with a numerator denominator like that, it's pretty good. Wow. So that's so what I do. You talked about making house calls. That's like, it's like a, that doesn't. That doesn't have old fish and turbo on here. You think of Dr. Baker from Little House on the Brick or did that? My father and grandfather were general surgeons. Okay. My mother was an OR nurse off the boat from Ireland. And their whole concept of life was uh, magnanimity of spirit. So I've tried to incorporate that into my life. You know, during COVID, for instance, nobody wanted to come to the hospital. So I went everywhere. I, I just... I have a Lincoln. I drive Lincolns, American cars only. So I get in my Lincoln, and I would drive to anybody's house in uh, Staten Island and put a mask on. I saw people in their cars. I didn't come to the hospital. So I'd go out to their car. I'd, I'd examine the kid in the car. I did everything to make sure they felt safe. Because, you know, fear is a tremendous uh, anxiety provoker. And these people were so afraid of the hospital during COVID. And some of these kids have real diseases. And uh, I'll give you a great example. During COVID, I don't want to bore you with COVID because COVID, is, we've talked enough about it, but I'll give you one little glimpse into it. Usually in the course of a year, I'll do 50 to 60 appendectomies at, at Rumsey. In During the COVID year, I only did seven. So I said, either they're not coming and they're getting better somehow on their own, or COVID changed the flora, the germs in the GI tract such that they didn't get appendicitis. So I said, look, here's a perfect example to write a paper. You got an isolated island. So I called the guys up over at Staten Island University Hospital with Peter Surgeons, who I'm friendly with. And I said, listen, how many appies did you do in 20, uh, uh, 2019 or whatever year COVID was? And they said, none. I said, what do you mean you did not? I said, if anybody had a appendicitis, we told them just to take antibiotics. We didn't do it. Strokes and MIs, same thing. Nobody knows why. See, the jury's still out on these things. But something changed with the floor of your GI tract, maybe even with your vascular system when COVID came. But going back to, that's a, that's an aside, but coming back to uh, making house calls, uh, it's very enjoyable. But let me tell you something about house calls. 
it's way overrated because the reason the old guys did it was because they had nothing to offer. You know, there was no ultrasound. You couldn't, they didn't have ultrasound, they didn't have CAT scan. If you're sick now, you need to come get your bloods, you need a CAT scan, you know, we can do everything at the hospital. Going out to people's homes, they used to just go there, cut their hands and send them out to God. I mean, they didn't do much for them, but it was nice sleeping, you know, Father Murphy. I'm no priest. <laughs> I'm no priest. But uh, yeah, but it's, it's a wonderful exercise to go to somebody's home. And they're always very welcoming. And, and for me, for some reason, probably because I look like an Irish cop, they always say, you want a cup of tea? <laughs> no, I, I always ask me, do you want a cup of tea? They said, full of tea. You know, you mentioned that you you know, you know served in the, in the military. Of course, thank you for your service. Did your experience in the military, how, how has that kind of guided you in what you're doing today as a pediatric surgeon? It taught me about fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing we feared in the Arabian Peninsula was to be gassed. Mm-hmm. All the intel, you know, we were always, we had all males. We had no female, because we had Arab, we had Muslim doctors with us, we had no females, otherwise they have to be covered, and it, it's really hot out in those forward positions. Mm-hmm. So there'd be 12 of us, and uh, we were always getting uh, films from the CIA, and it was everywhere, uh, showing the experiments so on, on gases. So they gas the experimental animals. Your, your lungs just dissolve. You take one, you take one breath, and your lungs dissolve. So it's like drowning above ground. It's very, it's very, it's, it scares you. And um, it's hard not to take a breath. If a canister pops off, you're going to take a breath. You're, so we were very conscious of that. That taught me all about fear. And uh, there'd be 40 of us out in the desert. And you only get a shower once a week. 30 seconds you get wet, you soap up, and then a minute to get the soap off. Everybody's completely bare-ass naked out in the middle of the desert. And the one thing you had next to you was what? You had your face mask because we were scared to death of getting gassed. Mm-hmm. And so people who have sick children have a fear that's visceral. The loss of a child is a visceral, visceral loss. And I understood the fear that they had by having the fears that I had in the middle of the desert in a combat situation. I think that's what it taught me. Mm-hmm. It also taught me um, at the end of the, one, of the, one of the conflicts, we did plastic surgery two British surgeons and myself, the emir of the United Arab Emirates was a very holy man, a very good person. And our Air Force, because there's always collateral damage, had done a lot of injury to kids and they'd been burned. So he flew on himself uh, on a plane with a huge jet to Abu Dhabi where we did all the surgery. But I, I learned that doesn't matter where you are, a kid is a kid is a kid. All they want to do is play and kick a ball around and, and be kids. And it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, if you're Jewish, or you're Christian, or you're Hindu. Just kids are kids. And the worst thing about war is that really innocent people sometimes get terribly damaged and terribly hurt. What would you say in all of your years of surgery? What was your most memorable pediatric surgery? Do you have a longest surgery or most memorable one? Well, you know, I did transplants. You know, I, was, I did liver kidney in, up in Harvard. I did the transplants as well. So, you know, you, 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 that's where you wear, you wear, you get shoes that have five holes and rubber soles. Because if you have five holes and rubber soles, you can stay on your feet for 24 hours. We would do these liver transplants that would take 24 hours, you know, and you get a break every now and then to your bladder. But that was about it. But uh, those are memorable cases. But what's very memorable is when you, uh, when you plug in a kidney and all of a sudden it lights up and all of a sudden out of the urinary you see urine coming out. And it's like, like turning the lights on in a dark room. We say, praise God, isn't this great? You know, uh, I went down to Bermuda one time 
to get a, you know, the, the Oregon Sharks back uh, had Bermuda as part of New England, probably because somebody had a, the desire to go to Bermuda. <laughs> there. Let's make Bermuda part of the group. So, <laughs> nice beaches. So, uh, so I went down to Bermuda one time. And a guy had been shot, uh, jail guard. He's about 6'6", six, six, about 300 pounds. And we took his kidney. Yeah, or we took everything, but then I got his kidney, and I plugged it into this little girl, and she was this tiny, tiny, tiny little girl, and the, the kidney was so big that you saw it bulging out of her back like serrated. You know, the old side, the old the, the old uh, artist uh, renditions of Christ on the cross, the serratus anterior, the muscle that made the medieval author so famous. It bulged out like serratus anterior on the crucifix. So... Every time I think of uh, something memorable, I think in her cramming and BUN were almost off the scale because the kidney was almost as big as she was. It was terrific. Oh, she did have a bulge yeah. coming out of her back, but she had a good kidney. She grew into her kidney. I hope so. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's 20 years ago now. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, that's very, those, those sorts of things are memorable. But but the most most gratifying thing of all, you know, I do a lot of pyloric stenosis. And when you do pyloric stenosis, it's an obstruction of the stomach from too much muscle. So the kids vomit all the time at four weeks of age. And when you open that up, the kid couldn't eat for days. And all of a sudden they're eating. You walk into the room and you say, wow. It's just, and the parents are so happy. It's like, I saw you before, boys swallow foreign bodies all the time. They get stuck in the esophagus, they get stuck in the airway. Taking one of those out in the middle of the night when a parent is so overwrought with anxiety is very gratifying. And, you know, it just makes you smile to say, Yahoo, take your kid home and yeah. feed him up. That's what that's, that's another thing we were always telling people, don't leave stuff on the floor, especially if you have boys, because they'll put everything in their booth. Be very careful of these things. Thank you, Dr. Gilchrist, for joining us today and for keeping our children safe and healthy. That about does it for this episode of Romsey Connections. I'm Meredith Gaskins. Thank you for joining us.